Well, we have a lot of diversity in the church, don't we? We have sermons that really rock, and then we have dry old guys that are professors all their life. So, you know, but it, it takes all of that to, to bring us to where we want to be. Well, um, Nikki is handing out a handout for you. I decided not to do a PowerPoint because I'd like to encourage you to be comfortable and to ask questions and things. And so the handout you've got may give you something to hang on to. If you want to jot any notes on it, that would work fine too. But I just uh, would like to talk to you a little bit about uh, reason and how reason fits into this framework that we developed last fall. And since it was last fall, it's probably hard to remember what we were trying to get at. So I want to spend a few minutes just reminding you of the framework for why we've had these sessions. I mean, Encounter is really intended to be Christian education. Mm -hmm. And the purpose is, therefore, to help us all learn how to live our lives. I mean, that, that's pretty clear. But it seems to me, when I start thinking about that, is the first question that comes up is, well, who's in charge of our life? Who's in charge? Now, what's interesting about this is that the world answers the question one way, and we, as followers of Jesus, answer it another way. The world says, well, hey, we live by what we decide. I'm in charge, right? Makes sense. If I say it's good, if I decide it's okay, well, then it's good. We define what's good for our own lives. We are in charge. Now, one of the interesting things about that is that you can't argue with that. Because it would be like if I asked Evan, what's your favorite ice cream? And he says, strawberry. And I said, well, mine is chocolate chip. Now, we really couldn't argue about that. Oh, we could, we could joke about it, but we couldn't argue because we all know that the choice of ice cream flavor is a personal thing that depends just on us. It's just a matter of taste, right? So we could pretend to fight, but we really wouldn't be fighting because there's nothing to argue about, all right? When people make themselves the ones in charge of their life, then there's nothing really to argue about. But Christians answer the question differently. We say, we live by what God wants, not what we want. God is the one who says what's good, and we do what he wants us to do, right? That's fundamentally how followers of Jesus and those in the world differ when it comes to this basic question about who's in charge of our life. Now, why do we want to obey God? Well, he designed us. I mean, if we believe that, he designed us. And who better than the designer of something knows how it should work best, right? If you design a machine, you're the one that knows how it works best. So it makes sense to find out what God wants us to do. So Christian education is to help us learn to leave, live our lives, but the world answers that question, how do we do it, by saying, well, I'm in charge, and Christians say, no, God is in charge. Now, the problem is that if we want to say God's in charge, well, we want to figure out what that is. How do we know what he wants, right? I mean, this is pretty basic, but I mean, that's what Christian education is about. How do we know what God wants for our life? Well, as believers, we say the way we know is by listening to what he says and what he said. Well, fundamentally, that means reading the Bible, because the word of God is how he tells us what he wants us to do. But unfortunately, the Bible isn't always easy to understand, is it? It has all different kinds of stories and approaches and styles, 
And so even if we're committed to the belief that we want to lead our life according to what the designer, what God tells us, and we learn that by reading the Bible, we still are challenged because it isn't easy to read the Bible. And one of the other things that happens is that we think we read a little bit of it and then we jump immediately to how do we apply that to a particular question that we're facing in our, in our life. So the encounter curriculum that Nikki designed for us last fall, and that we're kind of finishing up today because I couldn't finish my part in the fall, was designed to explain how we get from the Bible to the application of it. How do we do that? And there's a little chart on that little handout that I gave you that shows that the curriculum that Nikki designed started by giving us some tools on how to read scripture and then tools to interpret scripture and then only finally do we want to get to the question of how to apply it. So we, we learned some tools for reading the Bible. We learned a little bit about how to interpret it because by the way everything we read and hear has to be interpreted. Does that make sense to you? Everything we read we interpret. It's kind of like lenses on glasses, everything we see has to go through that lens. And that's true whether you're wearing glasses, like Sarah's got on, or contacts like I have on, or whether it's just the lenses of your eyes, right? It's going through a lens. And what you see is going to depend upon that lens. In 1 Corinthians it says, now we see through a glass darkly, and then face to face. So even the Bible reminds us that we're only seeing the world and understanding scripture through lenses. My wife had cataract surgery this week, so she's got a new lens. But then the third thing we do is we apply. In other words, we, we have to learn how to read scripture, then we have to learn to figure out what these lenses are doing as we read it, and then finally we get to the question, okay, now what does that mean for me to do? Last fall we had sessions on how to read the Bible, right? Remember to take into account the culture of the day, the Jewish traditions of that day. Remember the genre of writing, because some authors, like Matthew, wrote from a Jewish perspective. Others, like Paul, wrote from a Greek perspective. And if you don't take that into account, then it's going to be hard to interpret the Scripture. What is the big picture of Scripture? You can't just look at one piece. These are some of the things we learned last fall. And then we also started to learn how our particular tradition, the pre-Methodist church, the Wesleyan tradition, the Anglican tradition, use three interpretive lenses to understand the Bible. Tradition, experience, and today we're going to talk about reason. And so then the question comes down to the third step, and that is, how do we apply all of this then to think about practical questions? And last fall, I believe we talked about applying what we have learned about how to read scripture, what we've learned about the interpretive lenses of our tradition to questions like immigration, singleness, creation care, nationalism. Now, I only wanted to go over this to help you see the context, right? To remind you what we're trying to do, what the curriculum was trying to do. Now that middle piece on the little chart, that block in the middle, that second step, how does a Wesleyan, a free Methodist, an Anglican, how do people like that in our community interpret scripture? And we said that there were some elements of that that we called the quadrilateral. And so you remember talking about the quadrilateral before. But you know, in a way that word is misleading because it's not actually putting all four of these pieces on the same level. 
It's not that scripture and tradition and reason and experience are all just sort of equally important in helping us to find out what God is telling us about how to lead our life. Scripture is the most important one. So quadrilateral is a little misleading. One guy said, well, technically, we should call it a trilateral looking onto scripture or a unilateral rule of scripture with trilateral perspectives. That's all very fancy, but I mean, if you look at the little diagram I put there, instead of understanding what we're talking about here for this, this set of lenses as just a square, think about it as a three-sided pyramid. Because if you think about it, a three-sided pyramid has actually got four sides to it. I mean, it's got one on the bottom too, right? And if you think of scripture as the most important of these and the other three are supporting it, I think you have a better idea of what the Wesleyan tradition is suggesting as to how we should read scripture, interpret it, and then finally begin to apply it to practical issues. My life was a life in which all of those elements was a kind of an important piece, and it just came automatically growing up in the Free Methodist Church. My grandmother uh, converted from Catholicism and um, came to know the Lord in a personal way. She started a church in Chicago that came to be quite a large Free Methodist Church. I was taught as a little boy to go to prayer meeting on Wednesday night and prayer meeting on Sunday night. We went to church and Sunday school on Sunday morning. My father was a missionary. Sometimes I went to six, seven services in the course of a week. These are some of the traditions that I learned. Tradition was a big part of my growing up. There was testimony meeting. You'd all stand up and give your testimony. We would go to camp meeting every year. And we'd have services all day long. I learned about quiet time when I needed to spend time with God every day. I learned to memorize scripture. And in fact, that tra those traditions helped me to understand the first verses that really changed my life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but will have life forever, right? But I also had not just those traditions, I had a lot of experiential elements built into my coming up. Um, I mean, I was Italian. My grandmother was Italian. Our family was very emotional. Um, we, used to, we used to sing songs in church that would make everybody cry. Still, today, the only place I usually cry is when I'm singing a hymn in church. There's an emotional part of my background. Remember, it's one of those sides of this, of this quadrilateral. I can remember the preacher would give altar calls at the end of a service, and some of you may know this, some of you may not, but he would or she would say, come to the altar. And we would sing songs. We had some songs softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. We must have sung 20 verses of that song. Whiter than snow, yes, whiter than snow. This was the emotional side of my experience growing up. And it took scripture to help me work through that, to recognize that my faith is not about the emotion because that comes and goes. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. And then I moved on and really began to experience the, not just tradition, not just those emotional experiences, but also the importance of reason. Because in college, I studied physics. I asked lots of questions. And then I went on, I studied philosophy. 
and taught philosophy and taught logic for most of my teaching career. And there were times when I began to say to myself, wow, I had all those experiences and those traditions, but you know, is that really true? And so reason began to create doubts in my mind. But I do remember how scripture played into that. So my point in telling you that is just that in our experiences within a tradition like this, all of those pieces will probably have a place. And if you haven't got one of those pieces in your own experience, in your own life, well then maybe there's room for you to grow and to develop even more. Well anyway, all of that to say, that's what the encounter curriculum is about, that's what we are trying to do, and the middle piece, the quadrilateral, had these elements, and I'm supposed to talk about reason. I'm supposed to say something about the role of reason in helping us to know what God has to say to us and how we should lead our lives. Now the first thing to say is that reason is a kind of an inescapable thing about all of us as people. Reason is a set of lenses or windows through which we always look at things. We cannot escape it. We cannot avoid using reason. Even if you don't think that you are an intellectual person, you still have to use reason all the time. You can't even understand what I'm saying unless you're using reason, right? Because reason is what allows you to hear a sound in your ear, recognize the word, remember what the word means, and then understand it. So reason is crucial to communication of all kinds. We can't understand the words of scripture, in other words, without reason. We couldn't judge which of our traditions are good and which ones are bad without using reason. We couldn't take our experiences and contextualize them and say, well, okay, that was important in that context, but that experience isn't necessarily applicable here. We're using reason all the time. But the problem is that tradition and experience and reason are all corrupted by the fall. They're all imperfect lenses. My doctor tells me I have cataracts. They're going to have to come out. But that imperfection means that I don't see exactly the way I should. And that's true of all of these elements, tradition, experience, and reason. But I want to focus on some of the good things that reason allows us to do. Reason helps us to understand our faith. It also helps us to defend our faith, to understand our faith, and to defend it. Now, just a minute on understanding. As I've said, we can't understand what the words of Scripture say. We can't understand what theology means. We can't understand our experiences unless we're using reason to process it. I had a lot of students who were too quick to say, oh, that's just the mystery of God. But you know, God doesn't do things that are contradictory. God believes in reason. He created reason. God is a God of reason. Or some of my students would say, oh, God can do illogical things. Well, we could spend a half an hour talking about that right now, but God is not illogical. He doesn't operate that way. So we do need reason to understand our faith, but I want to talk for a few minutes about how we use reason to defend our faith. Now, the word that's given for that is apologetics. Apologetics. It's just a word that applies to a whole part of studying and education that relates to how do we defend faith. Now, apologetics has two parts. It has a positive part and a negative part. There's positive apologetics and there's negative apologetics. 
Now, there isn't a really hard and fast distinction between them, but there's a little balance scale that I put on your handout that helps maybe understand this. Um, negative apologetics is the use of reason to take away negative, to subtract things that stand in the way of a person having faith. Make sense? There are lots of obstacles or things that stand in the way of people believing. And negative apologetics is an effort to try and use reason to take those negative obstacles away. And I'll give you illustrations and we'll, we'll focus on a couple of them. Positive apologetics is an effort to use reason to add support for believing. Both of them use reason. Both of them are an effort to defend faith, but one of them defends faith and believing by taking away obstacles, and the other is by adding things that support. It's like you're going down the road, and you can't get to your destination because there's something in the way. Negative takes away the tree that's blocking the road. Positive gets behind and pushes your car. You see the difference? All right. Negative apologetics takes away obstacles. What are some of the obstacles that people have often to their faith, to believing in Christianity? Well, just a couple as examples here. One of the biggest reasons why people don't believe in God is because they see evil around them in the world. I'll bet you every one of you has said something like the following at some point in your life. How could a God who is all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing possibly allow you fill in the blank. For me, it was, how could he allow that I've lost two wives to death? How could he allow that my granddaughter be bought, born with heart disease? How could my colleague at Westmont be disabled when he's so bright and his wife disabled? You could probably fill in the blanks quite differently, but for many people, this is an obstacle to believing in God. Or another example of an obstacle would be, what about all the people that live in other parts of the world who never heard about Jesus? Is God going to just send them to hell? I can't believe that. Unreached people, unreached nations. So negative apologetics is an effort to remove those obstacles using reason. Now a couple of examples of positive apologetics. These are arguments, remember, to add support to belief to try and contribute to it, to push the car, if you will. Some examples of this are the use of reason to justify the belief that there is a God at all. If you can make an argument to support the belief that God exists, that's going to help for people to believe. It's going to contribute to their belief. There's all kinds of arguments in philosophy for God's existence. Now, some people like some of them, some people like others, some people don't like any of them. All right? For example, there's a teleological argument, there's a cosmological argument, there's an ontological argument, and each one of these occupies people who love to do this for years of their life. There are also arguments, again, positive apologetics, for the historicity of Jesus, for the fact that we should be able to believe in him. You've heard the phrase, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And that's an argument in positive apologetics to try and give credibility to the idea that 
Jesus is who he said he was. There's arguments from positive apologetics for the reliability of scripture, ancient scrolls and documentation, or for the distinctiveness of Christianity. Some people say, oh, all religions are alike. Positive apologetics says, no, they're not. Because in every other religion, the founder says, I am a prophet helping you learn how to find God. Christianity is the only one where the founder says, I am God coming to find you. So these are arguments, you see, that are used to support belief. Okay, so I want to focus on one of each of these. But let me just stop for a minute and give you some chance to ask questions, because I know some of you had some all along. Yeah. Hey, I was curious about what how reason is spoken of in the scriptures. Remember in Isaiah, it says, come let us reason together. And then uh, in Proverbs, it says, there's a way with man. It seems wise in his own eyes, but the way of it leads to destruction. So it's a tough thing. And then I remember that the word they used for the Greek translation in the very beginning of John says, in the beginning was the logos. It seems you can almost substitute the word reason, and it comes up pretty good. Yeah, in the beginning no. was the reason. Mm-hmm. The reason was reality. That's right. No, I'm, that's exactly right. And that word logos on the end of biology, sociology, and all those logos just means the word, the reasoning about whatever it is. Bi, bio, logos. Reasoning about life. So yeah, no, many people have said that, that, that reason is valued in scripture and that it is in fact one of the ways of understanding Christ himself. But as we see in this whole framework, we don't think that reason alone would be enough for us to understand scripture. We need experience, we need tradition, but we have to be careful not to neglect any of them. We can't focus only on one, we can't neglect any of them. For um, two guys that said something, Emerson once said, God made nothing without a crack, yeah. save reason. <laughs> David Hume says, anyway, we think we know, but we actually don't know anything. That's right. No, well, we could, if you want, we can do a whole course in philosophy or several courses in it's philosophy. Funny how we get upended, though, when we take reason a little too far. And when we take experience too far. And when we take tradition too far, right? That's, and, and when we get to the end, I want you to see for sure that these have to be balanced by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the very most important thing to be said in all of this. All right, well, let's talk about... Oh, excuse me, you had a question. Oh, I just had... Uh, regarding social moral issues, there's mm-hmm. a lot of reason involved there, but, I mean, there's uh, a myriad of, of uh, social moral issues. Absolutely. It seems we can always uh, uh, concentrate on... on a few. A, a few, one or two, or, you know... But, you know, is it that we are concentrating on the right ones, or maybe we're concentrating on the wrong ones to just concentrate on, to focus our attention and letting some more important ones go so we don't have to deal with them. I think both your answers are probably true. I mean, I don't think there is a right or a wrong one because the body of Christ is full of people that are very different as we learned this morning, right? Um, And so some are going to concentrate on certain social issues or personal moral issues. Others are going to focus on others, and that's okay. But it probably is also true 
that there are some social and moral issues that in the context of eternity are of less importance and if we focus so entirely on those so that we miss thinking about these others then we've missed a great blessing in our life and maybe missed some big truths too so i think both your answers is probably correct all right well let's focus what do you uh, i got uh, a writing from a church in the midwest that talked about their uh, graduation speaker who was Clarence uh, Thomas. And his topic was reason and religion, and that they are in- intertwined, yeah. they fit together. And this was a whole big talk, topic that he gave at a graduation in a Christian college. Yeah, yeah. No. As we're saying right now, I mean, reason is a part of what we have to use in order to understand Scripture, which for us, in our tradition, is at the heart of what it means to answer the question, how should we live our lives? Well, let's look at negative apologetics first. And then, um, time permitting, we'll have some time to talk about some positive apologetics. Let's just pick on this problem of the problem of evil, the one that I described before. Now, I hate to say it, but there's like 15 or 20 different aspects of the problem of evil. Moral evil, the problem of pain, the problem of pain in animals, and all this kind of a thing. But the bottom line is that at times in our life, we can't figure out how an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God would let these bad things happen. Particularly the bad things where some person is doing a bad thing, shooting someone. How can God let that happen? Well, the responses to these problems, these are called the moral problems of evil, are called theodicies. They're defenses of God. Remember, we're doing negative apologetics. We're taking away obstacles. So theodicies are attempts to remove, to defend God as a way of removing obstacles for people's belief. Now, one of the most famous theodicies is called the free will theodicy. There's another one called the character-building theodicy. But let's just think about the free will theodicy for a minute. Now, the first and most important thing to say about this is that this is not a use of reason that you want to apply when somebody's in the middle of suffering. If someone has just suffered a terrible loss, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent, the loss of a spouse, and they see it as a challenge, how could God let this happen? You don't want to go into them and give them the rational argument, the free will theodicy. Because at that moment, what they need is love. They need support and encouragement. But there are times in people's lives where they say, no, I just can't believe in God because all this stuff is happening. There might be a moment when you can then use reason to help them to see, no, maybe God can get off the hook on this because of the following. So how would that go? Well, God created us in his own image. pastor said that this morning in his sermon. Mm -hmm. Lots of people say, well, what does that mean? And one favorite thing to say is that to be created in God's image means we have free will. We can choose. That human beings have this unique ability to choose freely. Now, there's lots of theories about what free will means, too. Calvinists say self-actualization, and Wesleyans say self-determination, and so on and so forth. But... Why would God give people free will? It's obviously left, led to a lot of bad stuff. 
And in particular, if we're faced with some tragedy in the world and we're trying to figure out why God would allow it, why would he give us free will if the free will is going to lead to that? Somebody pulls the trigger and hurts someone. Someone abuses another person intentionally. Why would God do that? Well, the answer this theodicy gives is because God wants us to use that free will to choose to love him. He didn't want to create people who are like puppets. I don't think there's anybody in the room who would like to be loved by someone because that other person had to love them, right? You don't want to be loved by somebody because that person has no choice. You don't want to be loved by a puppet. You want to be loved by a person who has the freedom to love you. So God gave us free will. But, of course, as we know, once that freedom is given, then the possibility of not choosing to do what God has ordered automatically comes up. If you have the freedom between A and B, or better yet, between A and not A, then as soon as you have that power, and God gave it to people when he created them, then people can choose to do what God wants or to not do what he wants, you see? So freedom brings with it this automatic possibility of non-obedience, willful non-obedience. And that's exactly what sin is. Evil is non-good. When you have freedom, freedom means there's do what God says or not. And the not is the evil. So once people exercise their freedom and chose not to obey, the world became a different place. And the question then is, now that the world is a place where people freely have chosen to do evil things, what options does God have? Well, God could go back on his initial plan and take away the freedom, make us puppets again. But if that were really better now, then it would have been better in the first place. And so God can't do that, or he would have done it in the beginning. God could make us just people who always choose to do the right thing. Why not? Freely choose to always do the right thing. Well, you see, the problem is that that's a contradiction. You can't be free and always do this. I've had students tell me, yes, but God can do the impossible. He could make us freely choose to always do the right thing. And I always ask them, can God make a round square? No, God can't make a round square. That's a logical contradiction. It's not a limitation on his power. It's a limitation on the concepts that we are using to understand it. So can God make us free and not free? No. So that option isn't available to him. In short, God has created the world and given us freedom because he wants us to love him freely. But the consequence of that is that it's possible not to do so. And once we have not obeyed, now there is evil in the world and that evil leads to the tragedy that we see around us. And God's options are not to take it away. He can and does miracles from time to time, but his involvement usually is to give us a peace and a sense of, of perspective. 
And that perspective is balanced also by the fact that we know that in eternity the good is going to prevail. So this theodicy basically says, yes, there's evil in the world. It's hard to understand how an all-loving, all-powerful God could allow it. But apparently it's because he wanted us to be free to freely choose him. And the consequence of that is that we will freely choose sometimes not to. And that brings disaster in the world. And God does not change that because the freedom to love him is so important that in the context of eternity, it's worth all of the negative that comes along. Now that's an amazing thing. Because what it does is it means that our free choice of loving God is so valuable to him that it was worth all of the pain and the sorrow and the tragedy of the world that comes because on many occasions we choose not to follow him and not to obey him. So the theodicy basically is saying the evil in the world is not God's fault and there's really no better way to have dealt with it. This world is the best possible world God could have made. Think about it. If it's not, then why didn't God make that world? This world is the best possible world God could have made. If it's not, why didn't he make that? Now mind you, when I say this world, I mean this world followed by heaven. It's a package deal. He wanted us to have the freedom to choose. Even though he knew that it would lead to tragedy and evil and pain because the whole picture is the best possible world. All right, I'm going to stop for a minute. So that was an example of a negative. Right. It's trying to get people who are worried about how God could exist if he lets all this happen to see that there might so, be a reason for it. So removing the removal is saying that God isn't letting that. That's a consequence of the free will. The removal is that, yeah, God allows these things to happen, but he's created the world with freedom in it for a perfectly good reason, in fact, a huge reason, and we've screwed it up. So God is not responsible for the disasters of disease and of murder and crime and all of this. We are. Will you be giving an example of how to do using the same or not? No, because for most people, the presence of evil in the world is not a supportive argument for belief in God. It's generally an obstacle, right? Yes. It just stands in people's way. Yeah. And, but, and how, do you, how does that answer for natural disaster, where it is not of someone's choice? That's right. What you're talking about is a different kind of evil. The one we addressed is moral evil, where yes. there's a person. Non-moral evil means evil that happens that is not because of anyone's particular choice. Yes. Right. So, for example, when a tree falls in the forest and squishes the bunny. Yeah. Yeah. The world has changed because God set the world up in a certain way. And because of that, there are natural disasters that occur that were part of the plan from the beginning. Now, the case of some of these natural evils is that, for example, if I see something happen, I may grow as a person because of that. For example, if I have to go through disease and I struggle. I grow as a person 
because I have had to face this and I'm now a stronger person in my character because I had to go through this. There are some virtues, in other words, Sarah, that we cannot ever develop in ourselves if it weren't for challenges. So would that be an example of a positive apologetic? I'm trying, yep. just trying, okay. Um, that one would probably still be a negative one because people would say, when we get to the positive example, I think you'll see the difference. Okay. But that's still a negative one because people would say, wait a minute, nobody caused me to get cancer. But it's sad and it's tragic and how could God let me get cancer? All right? Well, the fact is that through my disease, through other people watching me and how I deal with my disease, Virtues emerge in me and in them that might not ever have emerged had it not been for that. In other words, there is a compensatory good that could only come because of that. Like, for instance, patience. You cannot grow in patience unless there's something causing impatience, right? You cannot grow in mercy unless there is injustice. You see what I'm saying? And so God creates a world, and this is now a second theodicy that we didn't really focus on. Mm -hmm. It's called the character building theodicy. And then there's variations of that. What about things that happen when there's no person that's going to grow in character from it? Yeah. And there's answers, at least attempts to answer that using reason as well. Any other questions before we go to a, yeah, Nikki. Um, but also, like, I think people could get confused because they, at least in the tradition that I grew up in, they might say, um, which I think is about theology, that God caused you to mm -hmm. have cancer so you could grow. No. And so, what I'm, it's, I'm glad I'm not hearing you say that, but to like clarify right. in case other mm. people heard that, you're saying, okay, it happened. God, yeah, it happened, and so, wow, you grew in character, praise God. Yeah. But not God caused that to happen so you could grow. God doesn't cause anything evil. Um, but we, because of our exercise of this freedom that is so important, yeah. have caused the world to fall. Yeah. And when the world falls, it doesn't just mean that other people now make mistakes and choose not to obey God. But all of creation groans. Yeah. All of creation now is screwed up. Yeah. All right? And as a result of that, <coughs> disease disasters and things happen which God would not ever have wanted in the first place but because the world is fallen they happen so this theodicy that I was talking to Sarah about the character building theodicy that isn't even on your outline is one which attempts to try and remove the obstacle people have when they say I can't believe in God because cancer happens okay it's not blaming God for it it's just saying well okay the reason is because of freedom and people have screwed up the world. But there is a compensatory good. And as a result of that, one can see that on balance, in the context of eternity, remember this world and heaven that follows, this is still the best of all possible worlds. Evan. It sounds as though you're not making a major distinction between God's God causing something and God allowing something. No, I, I am making a distinction because God intentionally gave us freedom. He did not intentionally cause us to exercise it in a particular way, but he allowed us to. 
Well, that certainly explains, say, Hitler, but not um, disease. Disease. No. Well, then the question becomes, how come God allowed disease into the world? Well, you know, when Adam and Eve, in, according to our tradition, when humans, generally, chose not to obey God, <coughs> it ruined the system. In other words, the things that would have been true about the world were no longer true. And in particular, the possibility of disease and the possibility of pain have entered into the world in a way that God never intended. But if God is not bound by time, he knew that that was going to be a consequence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So doesn't that really make him a cause agent? No, he knew it was going to happen. He knew that people were going to even choose against him, that people were going to sin, and that it was going to create all of the evil in the world. He knew that the world was going to come out exactly the way it's come out, but it's still the best of all possible worlds. See, that's the thing that a person has to wrestle with, because we know what the world is like. We know it's bad. We know it's got disease and bad choices. But as believers, we know that he's all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing. So how do you reconcile those two, you see? You have to put them together. So you have to say, well, there must be some goods coming out of this that I wasn't thinking of. And we've tried to point out some. There is the building of character, things that could not have happened if it weren't for these evil things. And the exercise of our free choice to love him, which apparently is so important to God, that it was worth all of this stuff that he knew was going to come along. And even the, the sadness of the disease, because yes, it may help some people to grow in character, maybe others, it just ruins them. But in eternity, the whole package has to be the best package. Because otherwise, Evan, we're stuck saying, well, either he's not all-powerful, or he's not all-loving, or he's not all-knowing. All if we believe those, and we know what the world is like, a theodicy is an intellectual, see we're using reason, an intellectual effort to try and reconcile those things in such a way that those things do not become obstacles to faith. That's exactly what we're doing. Now, are they convincing? Some people they convince, some people they don't. You see? All of the use of reason, just like the use of experience and tradition, is going to have a different impact on different people. Some people are going to love the experience of speaking in tongues or the experience of you know clapping in church and singing at the top of their voices that's going to lift them up other people it's going to turn them away some people are going to be convinced or reassured is the better word by the free will theodicy or the character building theodicy the issues of pain bother them less it's all relative to the individual well let's look at another one. Oh yes knew the answer to that question <laughs> all I know all I know is that he asks us to pray he commands us to pray and I do know because I believe God is all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing that he can and often well sometimes does intervene in mysterious ways 
that seem even contrary to the, quote, laws of nature, which aren't really laws, they're just descriptions of how God acts, to change the course of events. But sometimes he doesn't. And he has his reasons for, for doing it one way instead of the other. I wish I knew why, in some circumstances, he seems to make things work out the way we'd all like it to work out. In other cases, he doesn't. I don't know. But I do pray, and I believe we should pray. Well, sometimes he turns one of those bad circumstances well, into a good circumstance. If we come at it from the right that, point of view. That has, you know, the bad circumstance happens, but yeah. good things And sometimes grow, the sometimes like we're talking about church. Grows, right, so. yeah. We couldn't even grow if it hadn't happened. Exactly. Well, let's look, because I don't want us to spend, go too far past our time. Our time frame is 1.30, right? Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick look at positive apologetics, because Sarah won't let me out of the room unless I say something about it. Positive apologetics, remember that little balance scale. It's putting things onto the scale that help us to believe. So far, we've been talking about taking away things that stand in the way of belief. Now we're adding things that help us to believe. And one of these is an argument from morality. Pretty much everybody in the world says that there are some things which are just wrong. They're just wrong. I mean, an example might be torturing children. That's just wrong. Okay? Now, the question arises, why is anything right or wrong? In particular, why, was, why would this kind of a thing be wrong? Is it because groups of people have agreed historically that it's wrong? That's one theory. Not a very good theory, though, because if the group changed its mind, then it wouldn't be wrong anymore, do you see? And no one would say that if the culture suddenly decided to believe that torturing children is okay, that that would make it okay. That would be a problem with the culture, all right? Groups don't decide what's right and wrong. Oh, unfortunately, they often do like what to wear and what the style is. In fact, whether cheating is allowed. But as believers, we don't agree that right and wrong is based upon what the group says. Does that make sense? Because if the group changed its mind, then right and wrong would change. Nor, some people say, well, right and wrong is just what I decide. You're in that group and you think that's right, but you know what, I don't agree with that. This is very popular today, right? You do what you think, I do what I think. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes, it says in Scripture. Mm. But you see, the problem with that one is the same. If I am the one who says something is right or wrong, and then I change my mind about it, well, then suddenly what's right or wrong changes. So, for example, if one day I said, oh, you know what, all these years I've thought torturing children was wrong, but eh, today I think it's fine. Does that work as a way of explaining why it's wrong to torture children? It doesn't. Well, think about politics. <laughs> well, that's unfortunately <laughs> right. Exactly. Their, so, their minds seem to change pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. <laughs> but the issue here is what really provides the basis for something being right or wrong? Some people would say, well, it's actually nature. Okay, Nature tells us if it's natural, it's right. And if it's unnatural, it's wrong. Well, lots of problems with that one too, right? First of all, how do you figure out what's natural and what's unnatural? Does anybody really know? <laughs> well, a lot of that defaults to what's tradition. Exactly. And then it's a group again, isn't it? 
It's a group instead of nature. But people who say, well, no, it's not a group, it's not an individual, it's what's natural. First problem with that is, how do you know what's natural? But a more important problem with that is, just because something is true doesn't mean it should be true. G.E. Moore, a famous philosopher in Britain, once said, is and ought cannot be connected. What is does not imply what ought to be. This may be the way the world is. Yeah, all the politicians are lying. Is that the way it should be? No. Just because something is doesn't mean it ought to be. So the question is, if we believe that there are some things that are wrong, regardless of what any group, any person says about them, then what provides the foundation for those things that we believe are right and wrong? What makes them right or wrong? The argument says there must be something outside of groups, outside of individuals, and outside of nature. And we call that God. And so God is the foundation for what makes something right or wrong. It's not just that God is good. That would suggest that good is here and God is good. God defines good. God defines it. If he says it, it's good. Not just that goodness is a concept already existing and God kind of matches it pretty closely. No, God defines good. So you see how this is a case there of positive apologetics. Because for someone, let me try and explain. For someone who doesn't believe in God, okay, you can say to them, okay, do you believe in rights and wrongs? Yeah. What is the basis for that? Is it a group? Then you can show them that that falls apart. Is it your own personal choice? You can show them that that falls apart. Is it nature? You can show them that that falls apart. Well, if it's none of those, then it must be something outside of those. And that's what we call God. Now, we haven't got Jesus here. We haven't got even Jehovah. But we do have an outside source of morality. Do you see what I'm saying? And now what we've done is we've made a positive case for the need, if we're going to have all this moral experience, the need for an entity of some kind that is the source of moral authority. You see, that's now an argument for God. It's not just taking away an objection. It's arguing for God. All right? All right, well, just in the last couple of minutes, let me just finish by saying the most important thing about the quadrilateral is that you can never argue anybody into the kingdom of God. You can never use reason. You can never use tradition. You can never use experiences to force them to believe. I tried that when I was an undergraduate studying well, physics. It doesn't work, I right? Know, lost a lot of yeah, exactly. But scripture says salvation is not by our own effort anyway. No. Romans 9.16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So ultimately, the Holy Spirit has got to infuse this quadrilateral. Unless and until we as Wesleyans allow the Holy Spirit to infuse all of these lenses that we're using to interpret scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, then they will each become just an idol. They'll be something that we worship and we shouldn't. Tradition, I think you can understand this, can become a god, can't it? There are many churches where going through the certain ritual week after week after week is the thing they worship and it's dead. So it must be made alive, all traditions must be made alive by the infusion of the Holy Spirit. 
coming to church at the Free Methodist Church on Sunday morning and singing the same songs and going through the, the rituals can become a God. Tradition can become a God unless it's infused by the Spirit. But experience can become a God. Oh, I had a wonderful mountaintop experience. Oh my goodness, I felt such great peace. And if we worship the experiences, we're idolaters as much as the person who worships the ritual. The experience is important. The tradition is important. But if we worship that, then it dies. It must be infused by the Spirit. The Spirit must be part of our tradition and must be part of our experience. Likewise with reason. And there are many Christian denominations and people who worship reason. Oh, they've got their theology exactly right, like the Pharisees in the New Testament, right? Got their theology right, but there was no heart in it. There was no spirit in it. And so likewise, reason can be God. And so it must be valued appropriately by an opening to the Holy Spirit. So there's so much more that could be said about any of these things, but the point I'd like you to go away with is that just like tradition and experience, reason has an appropriate place <clears throat> as part of the lens that we use <coughs> to interpret Scripture. It is not co-equal with Scripture, but like tradition and experience, it's one of the tools that we use to interpret what the Bible says so that we can take the final step and figure out what we should do in our lives in all of these social and moral issues. So when a question comes up, should I be here on this issue politically or here on this issue socially? We should always stop and say, <coughs> what does scripture have to say about it? Sometimes it doesn't say much. Or it says something that we don't understand. So we have to use the tools of interpreting scripture. And then we have to ask, what does my tradition, what does my experience, and what does my reason tell me about it? And then we act with the confidence that the Holy Spirit has been directing us. Questions? Our time's up. <coughs> I'm sorry, sometimes when you talk about reason, it sounds like a philosophy lecture. Well, you know. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for coming. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Let's just finish with prayer. Okay. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you have made us human beings who are diverse in our abilities and our interests, and that you've given us these lenses through which to learn <clears throat> more about what your word has to say so that we can direct our lives according to your plan and not our own. Lord, teach us as we go not to either worship or to neglect the place of reason and experience and tradition in our lives as we search your word for what you would have us to learn this year, this month, this week, this day, this hour. For you love us so much and by the power of your Holy Spirit you are transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ.